makes the author want to write the book. Why did I want to write about communism or fascism or, or terrorism? Why? Because you want the, the, the viewer, the reader, to understand more what is going on because history repeats itself. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am so excited to be joined by Roberta Sorrett, author of the Transylvania Trilogy, Gift of Diamonds, Love Odyssey, and Treasure Seekers. I try to uh, think of my reader as a friend, and I write as if I'm telling my friend a story. Roberta Sorette has a Ph.D. in Comparative Literature and an M.A. in French from New York University. She is the Director of Advanced English and Film at the United Nations for the Hospitality Committee and founder of the NGO International Cinema Education at the United Nations. She has created a global classroom for students of all ages at the United Nations and now at New York University where she also teaches. Roberta is the author of the book World Affairs in Foreign Films and the Transylvania Trilogy, which I'll be talking to her about today, a three-book historical fiction series, Gift of Diamonds, Love Odyssey, and Treasure Seekers. Well, it seems that you're not shy about your approach to using your poetic license in order to share information <laughs> about politics and history. Can you tell us more about that approach and why you find it so valuable? Sure. Um, and that, that's very diplomatic of you to put it that way. What I try to uh, achieve is a hybrid voice to mix fact with fiction. So what I did was is two levels of narrative. And the narrative basically is the history, which is in the background, and is the history of communism in Romania, beginning in 1965 when Ceausescu comes in. And that is book one, The Gift of Diamonds, and what happens to a young girl, 17 years old, when she's caught up in this, and how she suffers, and how her family suffers, and how she wants to escape, and she escapes with diamonds, rare colored diamonds that her father got during the war. And she's going to leave Transylvania with her bicycle in the middle of the night and get to Budapest and try to save herself and then save her parents. And that's 1965 when Ceausescu is coming in and the desire to be free from communism. Book two is, uh, yes, I use again history and fiction, in which is 1989, and it's the downfall of communism and the downfall of Ceausescu. And I use two characters, a husband and a wife, two young doctors in Transylvania, and their story and it is also a romance type of thriller, their love story. So yes, I do mix the fact with the fiction to get a hybrid type of voice, to make the fiction a little more exciting with fact, make it more real, and to make the history a little more exciting with fiction so 
It's not boring, and yet it's very educational. And the third book, Treasure Seekers, is purely history. And that is history in the making between Iran and Turkey and a very important um, laundering, gold laundering case, which is the largest gold laundering case in history, and that is going on presently between Turkey and Iran. So, yes, I use poetic license, and um, at the end of the three books, my readers are always asking, what is real? Is it all real? And I have to smile because it is real, but the characters are fictional. Well, let's talk more about that, that it is real, because despite these historical fiction novels, it's clear you've done a lot of research, and you make that evident on your website for this series um, by sharing all your sources and sharing more information and photographs. Um, so can you talk about why you decided to be so transparent that way and sharing all that information online? Well, um, I'm basically a professor. I teach at New York University, and I teach at the United Nations, where I've been teaching for 20 years. And I like to teach. And I feel that if my readers are interested in, in my story, they may want to learn what is real and what is, what is the background and what is some more information if they want to get more of the facts. Of course, they can Google it. They can go to my website. Um, and um, I do share that information because I want people to learn and understand. I feel as a, as a professor, that's what I'm supposed to do, share. And I'm very privileged that I can do it. You also talk about putting yourself into the novels, um, and I, I guess I got the impression that this wasn't intentional at first, but then you kind of warmed up to it, and you decided, well, that really enhances the novel. So can you talk uh, more about putting your own experiences uh, into the into the books? Oh, good. Well, thank you, Colin, for saying that, that it enhances the storyline, because I did try to do that. I think that a, a writer comes with such a wealth of experiences. Um, and own personal background information that it, it adds to the story because it touches the reader. The reader knows what's real. They can feel it. And I do put in a lot of my, my life experiences, the things that I've gone through, the things that I've seen and that I have also learned. Um, and um, I do share it. And um, I share it with my protagonist uh, in the first book with Mika. Um, I always say, like Flaubert would say, Mika, c'est moi. She's me. I, I do put a lot of my soul into her. And I also do it with the, in the book, too, with Anka, the, the young doctor. And I do it in book three and four with Marita and Christina, all the four women who are linked together as best friends in Transylvania and each book their story, I feel is a part of me. Uh, there's a certain part of me that's the doctor, the certain part of me of the, of the designer or the entrepreneur or of the dancer. So I do put in my experiences, and I've been lucky to be able to have so many experiences. Uh, you, uh, in answering that, you did mention book four. Now, I have to admit, no, I'm, book I, three. I... Book three. Book okay, three. I, th I thought maybe there was another one. No, 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 book three. Book three is Treasure Seekers. Okay. But the four friends, I meant the four friends. Oh, gotcha. There are four women, four women, and they are best friends. They call themselves the Four Musketeers, and they are best friends from from uh, middle school in Transylvania. And each book is their escape. They are wanting to be free, and and they are and the uh, obstacles that they have to go through. Uh, three come to uh, America, New York, and one goes to Paris, France. So they are the Four Musketeers, and I call them poets of their life because they create their destinies. 
Well, and these are your protagonists, as you mentioned. Can you talk a little bit about your process of of how they came to be, how you developed them until they finally, you know, made it to the, the final draft? Well, when I started writing the book, my basic premise is, what is love? And what does someone do beyond the limits and what is expected when one loves? What do you give of yourself when you really love? And with the first character, Mika, she loves her parents. And she is going to voyage to become free and get to America so she could sell these diamonds at auction, get the money, and go back to Romania and save her parents who have been arrested. So it's the love for her parents because she's only 17 years old. And they give her the strength from from their own love and from educating her. And um, she wants to help them. In the second book, it is also love. It is Anka who loves her husband. And she feels that he needs her when he's going to be the leader of the revolution, and he's in trouble. Because after he does bring down Ceausescu, there are splinter groups who want to kill him. And she returns to Transylvania to save him. And then in book three, the two friends, Christina and Marina, also love. But their love is a little different because they're, they're now in their 50s, and they, they've had their romantic loves, their loves of their parents. So now they go on to a different love, which is love for justice for truth. And it shows what they do until they can be totally transparent and show what is truth in a political situation. And what can you talk now about what was that political situation? What is the historical context that, I mean, made you focus on this place and time period and that led your characters to, to flee from Romania? Um, well, uh, Romania has had a history of... of uh, during the war fascism uh, with a military uh, government and then communism with uh, several communist leaders. And it was, they, they've been doing that for 45 years. So it took them quite a while until they were able to be independent. And I thought the history was very interesting. My husband happens to be Romanian, so I, we would go back and visit, and, and we would have Romanian family and Romanian friends, and I would be privileged to learn about the history. And I thought it would be interesting to share this with the American reader who may not know so much about the history of Romania. But it's, that history of Romania is not just unique to Romania, in a way it is, but in a way it's also indicative of Eastern Europe. And it is the Eastern Europe of the eight uh, satellite countries under Russia that suffered uh, communism after the war. So I thought I would share that background and take it to Transylvania, which is such a beautiful spot, so exotic and so full of passion and life and color, and share this with the American reader, which may not be so aware of it. Well, now I'm, I'm a little bit ashamed because my college soccer coach is Romanian, um, that was almost 20 years ago now, um, but I, I, I never talked to him about his history or what led him um, to immigrate to America, and, and now I feel like I, I wish I had. I'm sure he had a very deep story. Uh, he must have been a very important soccer player in Romania. Uh, they, they do have a very good team, especially in Transylvania. Uh, where, which is hung, Hungarian and Romanian. They had very good soccer players. And uh, he must have taken that talent with him to um, America and became a, an important coach. And the, probably the soccer environment knew about him, so that's why they employed him. And I'm sure he was very happy teaching what he loves, soccer, to students. 
Well, he was, he was very fiery about it, but uh, I certainly appreciated everything he taught me. Uh, what 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 can you tell us about um, Romania today? What's what are the circumstances there now? Well, Romania today is a little of a mystery, Colin. Um, I think when we go on the TV, uh, especially I watch a lot of of CNN, I see a lot of the maps of of Ukraine, and then of course in the southern area I see Romania, I see Moldova, and I even see Transnistria, and I see the uh, the Black Sea and the Sea of Azov, and uh, you know the Donbas area, the eastern area, and not many people know what's going on in Romania. They know what's going on in Ukraine, but they keep seeing the maps of Romania. Now, Romania is part of NATO, and Romania is part of the European Union, very similar to, to Poland. And both Poland and Romania, in the past 20 years, have been favorite countries of the United States and of NATO and of the EU, as far as knowing that they would have to fortify these two countries as a buffer zone, as a buffer against Ukraine since probably 2014. So they fortified them with, with uh, military equipment, military training, and aircraft. We hear a lot about Poland because there must be at least more than 4 million Ukrainians who have gone to Poland uh, to emigrate there, and Poland has been so good and so giving and so open to help these refugees. We don't hear as much about Romania. Now, Romania has also opened up their minds, their arms to the Ukrainians, um, and they have had about a half a million uh, Ukrainians come in. Romania shares the same religion as the Ukrainians. They're, they're Orthodox um, and um, Greek Orthodox, and um, it's quiet as far as what we're learning, and I think there's a reason for it. One of the reasons is is that they're, they're getting fortified with small arms and a lot of military in Romania, and they're trying to do it secretly so so Russia won't won't be able to bomb the equipment um, that the EU and NATO and the United States is sending. So they're using that as a um, as a transport route. Also, um, I think it's quiet because we hear about Mariupol, the port that um, the Russia bombed terribly, terribly, and blocked it for any um, transporting of the agriculture because Ukraine is so rich in corn and in wheat and sunflower oil. And we need it. Uh, that's why there's, there's starting to be some hunger and famine in some of these countries without it. Um, but Russia deliberately is blocking the ports, which is Mariupol and Odessa now, and they want to make Ukraine landlocked. So if Ukraine doesn't have ports to get out their wheat and grain and, and their oil, uh, their, their, their cooking oil, it's going to hurt Ukraine's economy and hurt the hunger of some of the African and Asian countries. But what Romania is doing, Romania very quietly is helping them use Constanza, which is also a big major port on the Black Sea. It's in Romania, but things can be transported from Ukraine to Constanza and get it out. And I don't think that the, um, the, the, the allies, America, the EU, NATO, really want to put that on the loudspeaker for the Russians to know. Sure, and that's really quite interesting, and I definitely have not heard of any of that in the news. Um, so you're a professor, and it's clear you're very learned in these topics. Why fiction, then? Why, why write these historical novels? Well, I do, I do like history, just like you do, Colin. But I'm basically 
a writer. Um, I have a PhD in comparative literature and a master's in French literature, and I've always wanted to be a writer. And I've I've always been writing. I've I've written seven different types of books, different literary genres, and I've also written books about film, so which I teach. So um, I'm basically a writer. I just use history uh, for the trilogy, for the background, because I thought it was so colorful and not well known by the American reader. Uh, so it was a vehicle to use. But basically, I love literature. And why release this as a, a trilogy? And, and, and why, I guess I'm not real familiar with how trilogies are traditionally released, but it seems you released each one of your books almost simultaneously. Um, can you talk about that process a little bit? Sure. Um, I had written book one, and um, I just put it aside, and I didn't really do very much with it. And I wrote book two, and then book three, and I said, I, I really should try to get these published. And my publisher, who's in California, Berkeley, Wayne's Goose Press, uh, said, um, let's publish them all at once. And I said, well, maybe, maybe we should wait. Let's publish it one month apart. Uh, to give maybe some readers some some time to to go from book one to book two, book three, not not to bomb, bombard them all at once. So we chose to do it that way. I didn't want to wait. Sometimes they wait one year before they go from book one to book two or six months. I didn't want to wait so long. Um, and I did want to take advantage a little of the COVID situation where people were staying at home and reading. So that was the reason why we, we decided to um, publish each book a month apart. Hey listeners, this is Colin Mustful, the founder and editor of History Through Fiction, and I just wanted to take a quick break to tell you about a book we're really excited about. It's called My Mother's Secret, a novel of the Jewish Autonomous Region by New York Times best-selling author Alina Adams. The book begins in 1988 when Lena's father hints at a family secret. After Lena confronts her mother, Regina, about the secret, the story takes readers back to the 1930s Soviet Union when Regina flees Moscow for the Jewish autonomous region of Birobidzhan. What follows is a harrowing story of loyalty, courage, heartbreak, and finally, joy. It's a wonderful story and we hope you'll consider reading it. You can find out more by going to historythroughfiction.com my-mothers-secret. That's historythroughfiction.com slash my-mothers-secret. If you pick up a copy direct through our online store, podcast listeners can get $5 off the retail price by using the code PODCAST at checkout. Thank you, and please enjoy the rest of the interview. Can you tell us about, I mean, you said you wrote some books about film and, you know, you work in cinema education. Um, can you talk about your work in cinema education? And I'm also curious, has studying film helped you become a better storyteller? Oh, for sure. But let me first tell you about my film background. Um, 20 years ago, I uh, started working at the United Nations teaching English as a second language. And I, the, my first day of work was 9-11. 
And as a native New Yorker, you can imagine how I felt about 9-11. And as I walked into the United Nations on that Monday morning, I said to myself, what is the UN doing for students? Because I was teaching at NYU at the time and starting at the UN. And I started wandering through um, the UN, and I saw a theater, and it wasn't being used. And I said, this is, this is a great theater. It had about seats for 1,250 people. I said, it would be wonderful to show foreign film in this theater. And each, each country, each member country, the 193 member countries of the United Nations, could show their, their films from their countries. So I started to uh, fundraise to build up the theater so it would be operable for film. And that took two years. And then I, I started an NGO called International Cinema Education. And I started to bring in students into the United Nations from the public schools of the New York area, mostly New York City, and bring them in. And we'd bring them in 125, 150 students. And over the years, I've, sh I've shown um, films from uh, 150 countries and um, it, it's been, uh, I've had thousands of students come in. We give them a tour of the United Nations. I've had some grants, Ford Foundation grants, Morgan Stanley grants, other banks. And uh, I have been doing that as an international film festival for students, high school students mostly. Then I also teach the English as a second language to the diplomats. Um, and I have those diplomats from all the foreign countries of the United Nations. Um, and now I'm teaching it uh, to adults at uh, NYU. So I do teach film. I've written uh, two books on world affairs and foreign films in which I integrate the foreign film to the host country and the historical background that brought up the film. I choose films that have won prizes, either Oscars or at uh, Cannes or in Berlin or Toronto. And these foreign films have background in politics and history. And then I teach the history and the politics and I show the film. Well, that's, that's fantastic to combine art and history and politics the way you do. Well, it's, it's useful because somehow it mixes well. And as you said also, it does enhance narrative style. It does enhance storytelling. Because once you start telling a story about history, I mean, it's so interesting. And you get, a, you get an audience that's so avid to learn. And I find that film is is just as good, if not better, than, than books to learn history. Um, they say that film, you retain it more because we're visual learners. So our memory gets keener and we remember the historical and political events because we remember the movie. Um, and then I bring in a lot of the research, like you said, and I bring in the research more or less to support and reinforce the, the visual learning. So it's a combination, again, a hybrid of the written word with the, the visual. And as you continue to teach and, um, you know, you, you know, we, we all get more advanced in age, but our students are, are still always going to be in high school or college. Um, what, what do you think you learn from the, the younger people? What do you learn as a teacher from your students? I learn a lot. I learn a lot. I, I always tell my students I'm the one who learns the most. Um, I, I'm very privileged, as I, as I was saying, I teach this class at the United Nations uh, to the diplomats, and uh, that's the ambassadors and, and the people in the, in the foreign mission. So I am privileged. I have students from Iran. I have students from Saudi Arabia. I have students from Egypt. I have students from North Korea, from Yemen. I have students in which many people would not have had the opportunity 
to meet and talk to and contact with. And uh, I love to go for coffee with them, and I, and I learn about their countries, and they share books with me. And um, I feel as if I'm traveling, even though I'm not, and I'm learning. And I'm so privileged because these people are really selected. They're the best of their country, and they're good people. Even if they come from a, a country that has a bad government, they are good people. And it's, it's nice to make friends with them and learn. Yeah, no, that's a fantastic way to look at it. Uh, you mentioned that your husband is from Romania. Can you tell us yes. a little bit about his experience? And, and I'm also curious, you, you did travel to Romania. Um, what was that like for you to, to be there and to see it firsthand? Well, my husband um, grew up in Bucharest, the capital, and he went to medical school there. And when he became a physician, then he and his parents, he was the only child, he and his parents went to Paris. They were able to get into Paris, and he stayed in Paris for a while, and then he decided he didn't want to uh, set up a medical practice in France. So he then continued on with his parents to New York, uh, and I met him in New York. Um, then in uh, 1989, when the Iron Curtain went down, um, he said, I'd like to show you the country where I was brought up. And we went, and it was very exciting to see it um, in, in person after hearing the stories from my in-laws and his family and friends. But what happened was is that the first day that we got there, there was actually a revolution. And I used the scene of the revolution in the first book, Gift of Diamonds, and that's what begins the first book, this revolution, which makes the character Mika needing to escape because her parents are arrested. I, I, I use the poetic license that her parents begin this demonstration, and they're arrested, and then Mika realizes that she's going to be arrested next, and she gets on her bicycle, she gets the diamonds, and she goes to Hungary, which is a little safer. And uh, I, I used a lot of the experiences um, that I encountered while traveling in Romania. I would use my notebook and take my notes. Now, uh, your your books have won numerous awards or been nominated for numerous awards. Uh, how does that feel? Were, were you surprised uh, every time, or, or how does it feel to, to get all those awards for your writing? It is a surprise, Colin, and thank you for, for asking that. Um, I, I'm not the type of writer that writes for an award. I really write to write. I write, I try to uh, think of my reader as a friend, and I write as if I'm telling my friend a story. Um, so I was surprised and, of course, thrilled, and um, I'm very grateful, and um, I have to smile <laughs> because I didn't expect it. What type of book will you be work are you working on now or are you working on, on something that's forthcoming? I am working on something now and again now I'm back to film. I go from literature to film, from film to literature. And the book that I'm working on is called Night at the Movies. Night at the Movies in which I it's like a handbook of fifty of the best foreign films in the past years. And I I break it down into countries, and I recommend the films, and then I give background information on the history and the politics and an analysis and summary of the film so the person watching the film would be able to understand more about what's going on in the film. And it's a reflection of the class that I teach at NYU, because at NYU what we do is we see a film, 
we see now for the past few years we've been on Zoom. We, we everyone sees the film on their own, not in the classroom like before. But we see it on Zoom, and then um, I'm sorry, we see everyone sees it at home, and then we come together on a Zoom class, and for a few hours I give background information of the film. So let's just say uh, the last film uh, we did was uh, Penelope Cruz and Almodovar, Parallel Mothers from Spain. And I would give the background information why it was such an important movie for Almodovar and for Penelope Cruz, and both of them got so many awards, is because they were talking about Franco. And they were talking about uh, Franco's um, position that he did not bury some of the bodies of the Spanish soldiers. He just left them in mass graves. And the Spanish were not happy about that as of now. They want to dig up these bodies and give them the proper uh, funeral ceremony. So Amaltova uh, and Penelope Cruz both got involved in this because their grandparents were involved in it. They, they were killed by Franco's army, their grandfathers. They share that in common. And uh, they wanted to make it more public, so they made a movie about it. And it's a great movie. So this is an example of a of the film that I would use from Spain. I would use 50 countries and maybe one film from each country, and I'd give background of, of the politics and the history that form the film, the background of the film, and then talk a little about the film itself. So it's like a handbook, guidebook, night at the movies. And it could be read by people in, in a book club who wants to do a film club or a group of of um, businessmen who say, I say I give a film from Iran and maybe they they want to learn a little more about Iran for business or they or they're going to um, Saudi Arabia for business and I give a film from Saudi Arabia and then I give the background so they can watch the movie in a group setting and then discuss it and then get involved in learning a little more about the culture and the business and the politics before they do business or even go to that country. Wow, that's that's amazing, and I can, and you know, the way you describe it, I can see now how that would make a film so much more enjoyable, so much more meaningful when you're not just sitting and watching it for the story, but then you learn all this history that went into it and all the background that went into it. It would it would just make it so make it come to life, really. Right, exactly, and that that is the advantage of this hybrid approach that I use of mixing fact with fiction, because a film is basically fiction. It's a fictional story. And yet the fact is the background. It is the history. It is the politics. What makes the director, which is like an author, what makes him want to do this film? What makes the author want to write the book? Why did I want to write about communism or fascism or, or terrorism? Why? Because you want the, the, the viewer, the reader, to understand more what is going on, because history repeats itself. And you want to prepare them for a future history time like that. Yeah. Well, Roberta, um, thank you so much for joining me, and congratulations on the Transylvania Trilogy. This has been a real pleasure talking to you. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it, Colin. And if anyone is interested in my books, they can go to Amazon, and it's, it's there, or the publisher. But Amazon has it all available. And thank you very much. I appreciate it.